I invite you to open your Bible to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, we're at the very fulcrum of the book of Mark. The purpose statement of Mark is Mark 10, 45, which says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. It's those words of Jesus that define what it means to be a disciple of Jesus because it shows us what his mission is and how that mission correlates with our mission as his disciples. The passage we're in is chapter 10, verses 1 through 12. Uh, Chapter 10, verses 1 through 12. And it may seem like a funny thing to talk uh, to college students about, as you hear me read Jesus' definitive teaching on divorce. And the topic of divorce and remarriage is probably not one that you had on your list of things you needed to learn about today. But what's most compelling to me about this passage of Scripture for those of you, most of you unmarried, uh, and uh, why this would be of any relevance to you at all, is because it is still connected to what Jesus has been teaching his disciples and to what Mark has been demonstrating to us, which is what does it mean to follow Jesus? Mark 10.45, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many, has everything to do with God's purpose for your life in all the details of your life, including how you marry. And that's what this passage has, I think, for its relevance for us today. So you found yourself in Mark 10, verse 1 through 12. Let me Read it for you. It says this, Mark 10. And standing up, he went from there to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. Crowds gathered around him again, and according to custom, he once more began to teach them. And some Pharisees came up to Jesus, testing him, and began to question him, whether it was lawful for a man to divorce a wife. And Jesus answered and said to them, What did Moses command you? And they said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. But Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, He wrote for you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And in the house, the disciples began questioning him about this again. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she herself divorces her husband and marries another man, she is committing adultery. This is the word of God for us. Your marriage can wear out. P. 
People change their values and lifestyles. People want to experience new things. Change is a part of life. Change and personal growth are traits for you to be proud of, indicative of a vital searching mind. You must accept the reality that in today's multifaceted world, it is especially easy for two persons to grow apart. Letting go of your marriage, if it is no longer fulfilling, can be the most successful thing you have ever done. Getting a divorce can be a positive, problem-solving, growth-oriented step. It can be a personal triumph. So writes John, Adam, and Nancy Williamson in their book, Divorce, How and When to Let Go. That kind of thinking, to pursue the path predominantly concerned with your own satisfaction, is not unique to couples considering divorce. The idea that what makes you happy should be the north star of your life is a belief so firmly and widely held that it's almost universal in our age. The idea of living in a way that represents sacrifice and commitment, living for someone who is not yourself, is fundamental to followers of Jesus who understand his strong claims of discipleship. But in a world that is self-obsessed, and in a church that so often has watered down the claims of Christ and the demands of, that he places on his disciples, marriage is a victim of this kind of selfish pursuit of happiness and satisfaction. You don't have to look far, probably in your own families, to know and testify to those who've been touched by the tragedy of divorce. Most people have experienced divorce in their immediate family. Most people understand the kind of logic that goes into these separations and understand the pain and the damage and the difficulties and the collateral that comes along with the separation from marriage. This is a passage that gives us Jesus's view of divorce. But more than that, there's something happening in the flow of the book of Mark. There's something happening here that is not off topic. It's not a parenthesis. It's not a randomly assembled uh, bit of teaching on marriage just to kind of cram in there. Instead, I think it's directly connected to Mark's purpose as he tries to explain to his readers, many of whom were beginning to experience significant persecution, exactly what discipleship to Jesus entails. And discipleship to Jesus involves not just a portion of your life, your spirituality, if you will. Discipleship to Jesus involves the entirety of your existence, including who you marry, 
and what that marriage will look like as followers of Christ. It'll include things like children, which is the passage that follows, possessions, which are the things you accumulate, and potentially even wealth, which happens if you accumulate a lot of those things and if you don't have too many children. And that's where chapter 10 begins to unfold, right? It talks about marriage first. And then he talks about little children. And then he talks about the, the conversation with the rich young ruler and, and not just things that kept him from Christ, but many things. And all that leads to Jesus' words as he goes up towards Jerusalem with his disciples. And they're amazed because he continues to press towards Jerusalem. And he says to them in his second kind of prediction of his death, this is in verse 33 of chapter 10, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and will deliver him over to the Gentiles. They'll mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and three days later he will rise again. James and John's request is obviously related to their misunderstanding of how leadership is going to work in Jesus' kingdom. And Jesus is trying to redefine for all his followers, the ones that surrounded him as he gave this speech, the ones who drew in close to him as they entered into the house for further explanation. And in the purposes of Mark, inspired by the Holy Spirit, helping all of us understand that discipleship is going to touch every single part of your life. And there is few parts of your life that will be as touched by following Jesus as your marriage because of the nature of what marriage is. But before we can get into that in our context, I think to understand Mark chapter 10, we have to look a little bit at how they thought about divorce Uh, how they thought about marriage, how they thought about remarriage, because this isn't just Jesus offering some unsolicited advice. This is Jesus stepping into what was intended to be a trap. Look at verse 1. Standing up, he went there from the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. A little geographical note to feature there. His his position on the map, he's in the same region that John the Baptist was when John the Baptist got captured, imprisoned, and eventually beheaded. Do you understand why that would be relevant to this trap? Remember, it was John the Baptist's righteous stand against Herod Antipas and his incestuous and illegal and immoral marriage that cost John the Baptist his life. The Pharisees undoubtedly saw this moment as a perfect chance to entrap Jesus and hopefully to have him experience the same fate that his cousin experienced because he would open his mouth and say something that would be offensive to the Herodians. Jesus perceives that things are are moving towards the hostility is, is on the increase And at the same time, as he moves beyond the Jordan here in verse 1, this is the only time the word crowds is pluralized in the book of Mark. We've seen that word akloi, crowds, a bunch of times in the book of Mark. This is the only time it's crowds, because a crowd is always plural. But when it's crowds upon crowds, we're showing that the opposition to Jesus has not flagged his, his success, his popularity. There are still throngs of people that are surrounding Jesus, seeking his healing, seeking his attention. 
looking to his miracles and, and marveling at the content of what he has to say. And it says, according to custom, he once more began to teach them. And here we see Christ again in this role, this prominent role, this most defined role as a teacher, as an instructor, as a prophet, as one who speaks on behalf of God. And then the trap begins to be set. The geographical spot is perfect in the Pharisees' minds to uh, suck Jesus into their, their net. And verse 2 shows us what their motives were. And some Pharisees came up to Jesus testing him and began to question him whether it was lawful for a man to divorce a wife. And this is where we get into the massive background that is the Jewish understanding of divorce and remarriage. And to help you understand without getting into the, the Mishnah, which I was, I was in the weeds of the Mishnah yesterday. The Mishnah is a, a, a Jewish commentary in the Bible that over time and over the contribution of many, many rabbis uh, sat not only alongside of the Torah, alongside of Scripture, but even above it in many cases. Favorite interpretations had risen up in the name of tradition and become uh, an almost law unto themselves. And as I read the Mishnah yesterday, what, what struck me about it, uh, particularly the section um, about divorce and remarriage, I read page after page after page about the instructions that needed to be followed in giving a certificate of divorce to a woman. There was pages of concern about how that note was to be delivered. Details uncountable details about the kind of paper that was to be used. Or you could write it on a, the horn of, a, of, a, of an animal. There's all kinds of different delivery systems. And the concern of the rabbis was to make sure that when this divorce was requested from the man to his wife, it was done with all these particularities. So the kind of writing, the kind of ink it was written on, the verbiage that was employed, none of it directed towards the woman. All of it directed towards the man seeking a divorce. You see, two schools of thought had emerged by Jesus' time, really working off of very mere information in the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4, is the passage that the Pharisees are referring to in verse 4 of our passage when they say, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. That passage doesn't give really any information about divorce. It simply is seeking to legislate how the terms of remarriage will be conducted since divorce was a reality even in Moses' day. What had happened in the two schools of thought were uh, two leading kind of parties had emerged in debating this very difficult subject. The school of Shammai believed that the only grounds that were biblically permissible for divorce for the Jewish people was a case of adultery or sexual immorality. Another school, which would have been the majority opinion in Jesus' day, was the school of Hillel. And they took the first two Hebrew words of Deuteronomy 24, which it said uh, for, for any cause, 
and they took that to mean uh, any displeasure, if any displeasure is found, is what Deuteronomy 24, and they took it to mean any cause, that a divorce could, could be permissible as long as all the extraneous rules were followed about how it was carried out, but really any reason would suffice. So that the Jewish historian Josephus, when he wrote about his divorce, he talked about his wife was not pleasing to him. She was not, her behavior did not please him. And so he put her away. There was, there's other uh, divorce documents from the ancient world and the Jewish world that have been found uh, with outrageous reasons for divorce, like uh, he no longer found her delightful in his eyes or she burned the dinner. And so these tiny little kind of excuses had emerged and there was a whole school of thought that allowed for divorce with lots of technicalities that would follow uh, the divorce and, and this had become a raging debate among the Jewish teachers and scholars. The Pharisees, I think, had little regard for God's institution of marriage. I think they had high regard for their tradition, for their authority, for their political power. And so when they ask Jesus this question, they're trying to draw him into this complicated theological discussion. What you're seeing on the page here is not unsolicited advice from Jesus about the the glory of marriage. It will come. But what you're seeing is a ploy, a controversy, something that's been placed inconspicuously and dangerously like a landmine. They're trying to blow Jesus up, trap him, accuse him. The innuendo here is is what what part of the debate are you going to weigh in on, Jesus? This is similar to what we've already seen the Pharisees do in chapter 7 when the hand-washing controversy came out and all their rules about ritual cleanness and Jesus went to the heart of the matter. And that's exactly what Jesus is going to do here. He will not be trapped. He will not fall for this ploy. He will not step on this landmine. He will not fall into a place of accusation. And he will not be fooled by their innuendos. Jesus instead goes to the first principles. Jesus goes to the basics. Jesus wants to highlight the fundamentals. Jesus shows us God's plan and intention for marriage. Not legalistic addendums, not applications in the minutiae of divorce and separation and remarriage. There is no mere legalistic injunctions in the mind of Jesus here. He will not gain theological umbrage over his opponents as they think about the 10,000 different ways that a marriage could be ruined by the sinful heart of man. Instead, Jesus calls his disciples to a great and radical obedience to God's intended purpose of marriage as it relates to Christian discipleship. As in all the parts of the lives of Jesus' followers, every piece of their life will be informed and touched by their following Jesus. How does this talk about divorce fit in? Well, it fits in because the context is discipleship and the radical costs have been shown by Jesus of cross-bearing, of self-denial, of the one flesh discipleship is what marriage will come to see in following Jesus. Not only is 
are all the followers of Jesus called to walk with him. But those who are married are not called to leave behind their marital relationship in following Christ. Instead, in a one flesh flesh commitment to one another, they continue as disciples of Jesus. This is so crucial to understanding marriage. And it's why I'm eager to talk to you about this today because... Uh, my goal here isn't just to you know, prevent a future divorce in, in a future relationship that you have imagined in your mind. My goal here is to help you understand the emphasis in Jesus is the inviolability of the marital relationship, the exclusivity of the marriage relationship, the divine design of the marriage relationship, the wisdom of God that's on display when he brings a husband and a wife together. This is to speak of discipleship. This isn't a separate category. This is part and parcel of life. And life as a follower of Jesus entails radical commitments in all areas of life. And so when Jesus said that there would be separation between fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters and children because of following Jesus, notice that he did not say that there would be separation between husband and wife. Because marriage is, by its nature and definition, inseparable. Now, don't, under, don't misunderstand me here. There is lots that we could say and study about the terms where a divorce would be considered biblically permissible. We could look at 1 Corinthians 7. We could look at the parallel passage in Matthew uh, where Jesus talks about the the, the sexual immorality being a cause for divorce to be permissible. But I feel like to go there and to give you a, a long treatise on when divorce is permissible biblically and, and how it should be uh, avoided at all costs, even when the, the nature of the marriage covenant has been violated and how reconciliation be pursued. Uh, we could talk about all of that. We could look at the related passages, but I think that would be falling into the Pharisees' trap here. That's exactly what they wanted Jesus to do. That's exactly where they wanted him to go, to get into the minutiae and to get some, some kind of theological encampment going on. Instead, Jesus takes it here. He takes it to the most radical, the most clear, the most intended, the most original understanding of what God's plan for marriage actually is. And he's going to show us that discipleship for followers of Jesus who are married is a joint enterprise. It's something that you will do together. And for those here who are unmarried and who have a desire to be married someday, this should help you understand what it is you're looking for in a spouse, because the primary quality that you're seeking is not in a like-minded interest in film noir or you know, someone that also enjoys a fedora uh, or, or whatever kind of is on your list, someone you know, taller than you or shorter than you or, or whatever. What, what needs to be on your list is that you will only consider following Jesus with someone whose predominant concern is following Jesus. Because that's what life is. And to understand life, we look to the author of life, who's also the author of marriage, and that's where I think Jesus helps us see the context of discipleship and the enterprise, the joint enterprise of marriage. 
Jesus does not take a side in the well-worn doctrinal divide. Instead, he elevates the discussion, showing them that their sin, their selfishness, and hard-heartedness is at the root of the brokenness that is on display in divorce. Jesus instead chooses to drill down into the foundation of the divinely created institution. Jesus argues not for the innumerable issues and circumstances that come as a result of hard-heartedness. He insists instead that marriage is designed by God himself and designated by God to display lifelong fidelity in a union uniquely blessed of God himself. Jesus does not preclude exceptions, that there are times when marriages will end in separation, but he emphasizes not the terms of separation. He emphasizes marital unity. I think that's why Mark leaves out the exception that Luke and Matthew include. It's not that Jesus didn't say it. It's not that Mark isn't tra- is trying to cover it up. It's that Mark got the point. Mark understood what he was writing, what his purposes are, and he understood that everybody knew the exclusion, the exclusion or the exception clause. The exception clause of except for cases of adultery or sexual immorality was something that was widely known to the Jews. It was why divorce was on the table at all. Divorce was seen as something uh, not only permissible, but commanded by God. And Jesus reverses that language from permissible and commanded to not commanded and permissible only in the very unique and painful circumstances that come from hardness of heart. Marriage being designed by God himself and designated by God to display covenant fidelity in union with one another and in union as followers of Jesus, experiencing the blessing of God does not preclude those exceptions. And so Jesus flies in the face of his contemporaries who had fallen into a lax approach to divorce. And in that way, shows us just how relevant this talk is for us today. We live in a culture, like the authors who I began quoting, who see divorce as an unfortunate but necessary and constant reality. It's something like 40% of marriages end within their 10 years in divorce. Just looking at the statistics widely, I was on the CDC website. They have that on the CDC website. I don't trust the CDC. But I figure that... (laughs) Sorry, the fact that it's on the CDC website is extremely distracting to me. Can I just say that? More than 20% of first marriages end in divorce within five years, and 48% of marriages dissolve by the 20-year mark, according to the 2006-2007 data from the government's National Survey of Family Growth, available on the CDC website. And so I don't think I have to give you the statistics for you to understand what a, what a raging problem this is. I mean, if I had you raise your hand, I'm pretty sure 90% of you have people in your lives whose, whose families have been affected by divorce, who've seen the devastation that comes between a husband and a wife and between their children as a result of these kind of separations. And no matter how many of the advocates of divorce and those who have found such 
uh, stated happiness as a result of their divorce will try to write and extol the goodness of what the experience they've been through. That's not the route that Jesus takes. Flying in the face of his contemporaries' laxity about marriage and divorce, the abuse that the Jewish leaders had brought into this situation as they preached on all the reasons a person could seek a divorce and still be uh, pleasing to God, and contrary to the adulterous, abusive Roman practices that the Gentiles had in the, the, the world that surrounded the early church that were concerned exclusively, almost exclusively for the rights of the man, Jesus shows that his concern is not for the man or the woman alone, because in marriage, there is no alone. The one fleshedness is the emphasis that Jesus places on marriage. Jesus's followers were to understand that the radical commitment that came from following him did not change their commitment to their spouse. They were to remain united and committed to their marriages as long as life shall last. Marriage's permanence, a union that carries on as discipleship's demands continues. Rather than seeing divorce as a command, Jesus expresses it as a concession. And debriefing with his disciples shows us that divorce is tantamount to adultery. That's where this passage is going. Looking at it briefly in three parts. Divorce is, number one, contrary to God's purpose for marriage. Divorce is contrary to God's purpose for marriage. They try to trap him and say, you know, it's a test, it's a question. In verse two, he answers and and he wisely says, what did Moses command you? And Jesus intentionally uses that word command. So what are the commandments about divorce? And they have to admit right off the bat because of Jesus's wise use of that word command. Verse four, they said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. The reference is Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4, the cause of indecency, it says, and that was the debated phrase by the two parties. But right off the bat, we're shown that divorce is something not commanded by God. In other words, it's not condoned, but it's regulated Divorce was something that existed. Jesus wasn't denying that. And he's seeing it as permissible in these two schools of thought. But Jesus at the outset is showing that divorce exists because sin exists. That's why Jesus says in verse 5, but Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote for you this commandment. And Jesus, using the commandment language again, puts the emphasis on what is commanded, which is how he's going to end this discussion in private with the disciples, because the only commandment related to marriage is the seventh one, thou shall not commit adultery. When my kids were little, we memorized the Ten Commandments. My kids are old, sophisticated people now, but uh, except Owen, he's still young and strong, but when my kids were little, they memorized the, the, the Ten Commandments with, with hand motions. I've shown them to you before. Uh, if not, I'll do a private audience afterwards for my disciples. And 
we did this one as uh, thou shalt not commit adultery. Mom and dad stay together. That's how you do the hand motion. Remember, it's the seventh commandment. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Mom and dad stay together. When the littlest one learned it, she was probably too young for this explanation, but she did it as uh, thou shalt not commit a grocery. So, which is a good weight loss technique, but that's not what the seventh commandment is saying. But Jesus uses this, this phrase, command, because he's trying to get them to see the difference between what is an allowance because of the fall, because of the entrance of sin into the world, and what is actually God's intended design. You see, in the Garden of Eden, there was marriage, and there was no divorce. There was one flesh union. There was a helpmate made in perfect harmony. There was... Adam and Eve, not a plethora of individuals. There was a man and a woman. It was a heterosexual, lifelong, covenantal, exclusive, intimate, enduring, helpful, God-glorifying relationship that God created. There was no divorce. It's not part of God's intention. And that's so crucial at the outset. That's why point number one is contrary. Divorce is contrary to God's purpose for marriage. When Marilee and I were having premarital counseling, which is what your pastor makes you do when you say you're going to get married, right? You meet with like a couple, you go through a book together, you get Wayne Macked or whatever. When we met with, with our pastor um, back then, a few years ago, his name was Jonathan. Uh, Jonathan, I I remember one thing he told us. He said, I I probably remember more than one thing, but I remember this one thing. He said, you're never allowed to talk about divorce. Don't joke about it. Don't consider it. Don't bring it up in passing. It's just, it's not on the table. That's how he addressed it with us. And we were not thinking about divorce. We're like six weeks from getting married. (laughs) That's not on the table at all. He wanted to prepare us for times that it could be and have it be so off the table in our coming conflicts that he could foresee that we could not imagine to make that not even part of the conversation. I think that was very Jesus-like of him. Jesus is showing that divorce didn't exist, that marriage is the originator, that marriage is the intentional plan, that marriage is the creational ordinance. And that's why Jesus said, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote for you this commandment. The Edenic state had a heterosexual, lifelong, monogamous, covenantal, exclusive, intimate, helpful, enduring relationship. That's why Adam and Eve were brought together. Jesus goes on to say, but from the beginning, verse 6, of creation, God made them male and female. Jesus is using the Bible here, not the Mishnah. The Bible, the Torah itself, he's quoting Genesis one twenty seven, And the emphasis there is that this is something pre-fall. This is something that is original. This is from the beginning of creation. This is what God looked at and called good. 
And part of that is the uniqueness of the of the genders that God made male and God made female. And they were complementary to one another. They were intended to serve and help one another, to be fit with one another. And that's where creation begins, and that's where marriage begins. If you start with the original principle, it helps you understand that rather than a focus on the minutiae and the 10,000 different circumstances that could come into a, a broken relationship, the focus ought to be on what marriage is actually for. And it's for man's happiness. And by man, I mean humankind's happiness. And it's for the glory of God because God made it and blessed it and called it good. Marriage is not a societal convention. Marriage is not a civil um, agreement. Marriage is not ultimately one that happens at the courthouse in Van Nuys. Marriage is something that happens in the mind of God, our creator. That's the origin. And starting there helps us see why we need to see marriage as inviolable, as permanent, as enduring, as helpful, and as worthy of uh, as worthy of being a part of our dis- our journey as disciples of Jesus. Uh, second, uh, contrary to God's purpose for marriage, divorce is second. Divorce is arising from hard hearts. It's important I clarify here, as Jesus said in verse five, because of your hardness of heart, He wrote for you this commandment. Jesus isn't saying that there aren't victims in a broken relationship, that there is such a thing as an innocent party. What he is saying, and I think I've said this, but to underline it a bit more, that the reason a marriage would ever go wrong is always because of sin, because of unrighteousness, because of a lack of concern for the purity and reality of that one flesh union. That's why Jesus speaks of the hardness of heart. And that's a phrase that we should be so familiar with, isn't it? We all understand what it means to have a hard heart, to to be hardened towards the things of God, to be insensitive towards our own sin, uh, rather than being repentant and and soft-hearted. To have a hard heart towards your spouse or towards God's design for marriage is a disaster impending. And so... Divorce is not only contrary to God's purpose for marriage, it arises from hard hearts. It's not something that is part of God's will, part of God's intention. Though there was allowances for divorce, even in Torah, and though the Apostle Paul will extrapolate on those allowances in 1 Corinthians 7, and Jesus himself will provide an exemption clause in this very speech because of the nature of adultery breaks the marriage relationship or has the potential to break the marriage relationship. That doesn't mean that the purpose is changed or thwarted. The foundation, the first principles, the basics, God's plan and intention remain the same. One woman and one man for a lifetime. Third, divorce produces spiritual adultery. To get there, we need to work through verse 7. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. You see, the two are now responsible for each other. That's what happens in marriage. No longer two, but one. 
All other previous allegiances are now prioritized in a different way. Even our own individual rights are prioritized in a different way. Because according to biblical teaching, 1 Corinthians 7, your body no longer belongs to you, but it belongs to your spouse. It's a one flesh union. It's an infleshinated. You have become together so that your concern is no longer for your own self. And that's the entirety of you is why it's described as a one flesh union. It's why Paul makes bodily rights belong to each other and not just to the husband or not just to the wife. You have become one. You've become a union. It is now this inviolable relationship that is intended to bring happiness and glory to God. And no matter what kind of questions they're trying to trap Jesus with, he is pressing that marriage is a covenant, a sacred covenant that brings a husband and a wife together as one flesh, committed to this union to love one another, to sacrifice themselves for the good of the other person, to constantly be at work in repentance and reconciliation, that nothing in that union should come between these two people who have become one. This marriage relationship, according to Ephesians 5, reflects the oneness that God has with us through the gospel of Christ. In other words, marriage is simply a picture of a greater reality it represents, that God giving his son for wayward children and sinners and reconciling them to himself is supposed to be uh, enfleshed and and pictured and... um, given a metaphor in the relationship of the mystery of marriage. Divorce ought to be unimaginable for followers of Jesus who've experienced the grace of God in the gospel and who've been made in union with Christ through their salvation. Because of the forgiveness of their sins, they should understand the kind of soft-heartedness that's required in a one-flesh relationship to promote the best for the other person, to forgive the other person, and to love the other person in spite of their flaws. And it goes both ways. Verse 7 is a quotation from Deuteronomy 2.24, that one flesh nature of marriage. And then Jesus adds his concluding imperative in verse 9. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. It's not that it can't be separated. It's that it should not be separated. It must not be separated. And when the the preacher says that at your wedding, what therefore God has joined together, let no man separate, he he doesn't speak that with some kind of power that shows that this marriage will never end. I've officiated a lot of weddings in my life, almost as many as Vegas. And, And not every single person has stayed together. Some of those people have been divorced, and I've I've confronted them. Uh, and reminded them of the day they made their vows and promises and a covenant before God and their witnesses. But it's clear that that marriage came to an end because of the hardness of heart. It's not that it cannot end or that it, it, it's unable to be separated. It's that it should not be separated is what Jesus is saying. It must not be separated because it's been joined together or the word for joined in verse 10 is glued, verse 9, glued together by God. 
As God extracted Eve from Adam's side, he brings them together again in marriage, and no one ought to tear that apart. Not the husband, not the wife, not someone outside of that precious union. And so finally, it produces spiritual adultery. The disciples, as is their their habit, get a private audience with Jesus for him to explain this a little bit further because they had, I'm sure, been all a part of the exemption clauses and the burnt breakfast and the displeasing in my eyes discussion that the leaders of the day had had. And so they've got to be wondering, Jesus, what are you doing? This is radical. This is different. Help us understand their mentality is still very worldly. They don't know exactly what Jesus means. And so Jesus clarifies with these words. He said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she herself divorces her husband and marries another man, she is committing adultery. Jesus is doing here the exact same thing he was doing with the crowd, except he's reminding his followers that their preeminent desire should be to honor God. And adultery, the seventh commandment being violated, does not honor God. God created only two humans at the very beginning. He joined and glued them together through the strength of the marriage bond. And anything that comes between those two that would seek to tear them apart uh, is a relationship I'm sorry, let me say it like this. The the only thing that could possibly threaten a relationship like this that's marked by intimacy and love and commitment to one another is if that relationship is violated on that same level of intimacy and care and concern and love. And that's why adultery is such a heinous sin. God ordains marriages and they're not to be broken by man. And when that, when that intimate relationship is violated and betrayed, that's why there's so much fraying of human relationships. That's why there's so much betrayal, so much hurt, so much pain. And so Jesus tells his disciples that they need to be fearful of adultery because they're committed to this one flesh union, this inviolable work of God in the, rooted and grounded in the nature of God who is all loving and all giving, who is constantly working towards reconciliation with man and those who mirror the gospel should be working towards the same look. That's how discipleship relates to marriage and that's how marriage relates to discipleship. Jesus's followers were to remain committed to their marriages as long as life should last. The permanence of their marriage, the union that Jesus demanded should follow him, should never consider divorce, certainly not as a command. And Jesus expresses it as a concession, debriefing with these disciples to show that divorce is tantamount to adultery. And adultery is the opposite of a one flesh union. He calls them to great and radical obedience to God's intended purpose. That selfishness and hard-heartedness is the greatest threat to marriage. And marriage is designed by God to be a blessing and benediction to God's relationship to us because Christ is married to his church. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And I pray that this was helpful 
in showing us the truth and the foundation of this most significant human relationship. Father, there's so much we didn't say. Marriage is not the chief end of man. And so for those here who are called to celibacy or singleness, a commendable calling, help them to see, even in marriage, not something that they want to desire, something that that they can't have, but help them to see that marriage is a blessing and a benediction even to single people because it's part of God's creation. Father, for those who are, are far off from marriage or near to marriage, help them to think about it biblically to think about the the need for that selflessness, that spirit of reconciliation that will guard and protect that one flesh union and help us to see every area of our life as an area that needs to be submitted to Christ as we follow him. In Jesus' name, amen.